Welcome to another home-cooked episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. And with me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Monday, June 15th. Well, we have a reprieve from primaries this week, an incumbent lost over the weekend for the third time this year. 2,500 Republicans at a drive-through convention in a church parking lot in Virginia's Southside region ousted Congressman Denver Riggleman in favor of Bob Good, a self-described biblical conservative. While Riggleman was the third incumbent who failed to be renominated, following Democrat Dan Lipinski of Illinois and Republican Steve King of Iowa, there could be more on the way. On this episode, we'll get into more of what to watch this year as Greg and I answer some of the overflow of questions we received during a webinar we conducted with BGov subscribers last week. After that, We'll break down a TV ad currently on the airwaves that caught our attention. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down-Ballot Counts. Up first is Jero's Gem. Jero's Gem, my number of the week is 56. That is the number of African-American members of Congress, or 11% of the 531 seats in both chambers that are presently occupied. There are also two African-American delegates in the Congress. At a time when the Black Lives Matters movement is active amid widespread demonstrations and calls to curb police brutality and white supremacy, the number of African-Americans may increase in the November election. The most senior black legislator in the Congress is Georgia Democrat John Lewis, the civil rights icon first elected to the House in 1986. The highest-ranking black officeholder in Congress is James Clyburn, the House Majority Whip from South Carolina and the number three Democrat in the majority party leadership. In some districts, black Democrats may succeed white members of Congress and increase their numbers in the November election. In New York's 16th District, Jamal Bowman, an educator, may unseat Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Elliot Engel in the primary on June the 23rd. In New York's 17th district, just next door, Mondaire Jones is one of the leading candidates to succeed retiring Congresswoman Nita Lowy. And in New York's 2nd district on Long Island, Democrats are backing Jackie Gordon for the district of retiring Republican Pete King. Among black Republicans, Wesley Hunt is the nominee against first-term Democrat Lizzie Fletcher in the Houston-area 7th district in Texas. And John James, a Michigan businessman and military veteran, is the party's nominee against Democratic Senator Gary Peters. So, 56th, the number of African-American members in Congress, that is your Jero's Gem of the Week. Stick around after the break for a little Q&A with Greg and me. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Greg and I had a lot of fun answering questions for a webinar we did for BGO subscribers last week. But time ran out, and we didn't get anywhere close to answering all of them. So we thought we'd take some of those questions to the pod for our first ever mailbag segment. I'll kick us off. First question, are there any state legislatures that could go from red to blue? Well, uh, as listeners of this podcast know, our uh, guest last week was DLCC President Jessica Post, who laid out uh, the Democratic target list for us. Uh, included the House and Senate in Arizona, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. Uh, those are all presidential battlegrounds. Um, but they also hope to win the Iowa House, Michigan House, Minnesota Senate, and the Texas House. And as a tease for next week's episode, we'll get another perspective on state legislative races. 
Okay, on to more questions. We'll do a rapid fire format here. Greg, are you ready? I am. All right. How vulnerable do you believe David Scott is? Well, it's interesting. When we had that, uh, when we did that um, webinar last Wednesday, uh, the the Associated Press had called a runoff for David Scott, but it turns out we had a lot of votes that were added to the total, and that David Scott is actually going to avoid a runoff and win the Democratic nomination outright. He has about fifty-two percent of the vote. We had uh, the Georgia primary was kind of a big mess, Kyle, and uh, you had uh, long lines to vote in the in those primaries. You had a lot of absentee ballots cast, mail ballots cast that were not tallied on election night, and we're still getting votes tallied in Georgia now that we're speaking almost a week after that election. So it really underscores the challenges that states like uh, Georgia and other states are going to have in dealing with a high turnout, presidential level turnout, when you have a lot of people who are probably going to avoid going to the polling stations on election day and instead casting their ballots by mail. The question is, can states really prepare for that high volume of mail-in ballots? That's right. And this was big talk on Capitol Hill last week. There was a House hearing uh, on this very thing. Um, It had actually, it was delayed a week. And then the Georgia uh, primary happened and it gave them even more ammunition to talk about um, and worry about what's what November is going to look like. Um, Nancy Pelosi on Thursday at her press conference talked about the states needing more money for elections um, so that everyone can vote safely um, and securely. Uh, So this is a big talk. This is what people are going to be talking about all summer uh, and into uh, the November elections. All right. Next question. How has the progressive movement been doing thus far in the primaries? Well, it got a big early win this year in March in Illinois, where Marie Newman defeated Congressman Dan Lipinski in the Chicago area. Uh, They lost a close race. Progressive groups in Texas were behind Jessica Cisneros, a young immigration lawyer who tried to unseat Henry Cuellar in South Texas. She almost did it. So while that was a loss for the progressive movements against a moderate blue dog Democrat, she came really close. So um, she probably covered the spread. But in politics, you have to win. You can't just, you know, so-called cover the spread. And we still have a lot of congressional primaries left where the clout of progressive groups and individuals will be tested. The Kentucky Senate Democratic primary, you see some progressive powerhouses like AOC and Bernie Sanders backing Charles Booker against the heavily favored DSCC-endorsed candidate, Amy McGrath. Then you see some progressive groups behind Mondaire Jones, as I mentioned, in New York's 17th district, Nita Lowy's seat. And in New York's 15th district in the South Bronx, an open district, you have a bunch of progressive Democrats running in a field with a socially conservative New York City councilman, Ruben Diaz Sr., who the left does not want to win with a plurality, Kyle. You mentioned Amy McGrath. She's a Democratic woman hoping to win a Senate seat. Our next question is, any chance for new Republican women in governor or Senate seats? Well, the opportunities are very limited for Republican women in in governor's elections and Senate elections. Uh, Cynthia Lummis in Wyoming, former congresswoman, is the favorite, I think, for the Senate seat that Mike Enzi is leaving open to retire. No other non-incumbent Republican women are in highly competitive Senate elections, but you do need to watch the six Republican women of the nine uh, in Republican women in the Senate who are up for election or re-election in November, including Martha McSally of Arizona, Susan Collins of Maine, Joni Ernst of Iowa, and Kelly Leffler of Georgia. It's a lighter year for governor's elections, most of which take place in the midterm election year. And there was only one non-incumbent Republican woman running for governor this year in Utah, and she was eliminated in a nominating convention. There are uh, three Republican women serving as governor, but none is on the ballot this year. That's according to the always helpful Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University. Okay, next question. 
What impact will the defund the police effort have on toss-up races? Well, Kyle, I think it remains to be seen. But if this issue is still at the forefront in the fall, I think Republicans will try and use that slogan against Democrats in competitive districts that Trump carried in 2016. I suspect that Democrats will try and distance themselves from that wording because it sounds too much like wanting to zero out funding or eliminate the police, which would not be a winning issue politically in those districts. And House Majority Whip James Clyburn said on Jake Tapper's CNN program Sunday that, quote, nobody is going to defund the police, unquote. So I would expect discussion of restructuring and changes to policing without these Democrats in tough races using the word defund. Yeah, they're going to have to come up with a new slogan, perhaps on uh, whatever legislation uh, comes out of uh, the discussions going on right now. Um, potentially not a winning description and certainly one Republicans uh, are going to pounce on and, and try to use. All right. Next question. What has been the most surprising fundraising filing for this cycle? Greg, there was a, a big announcement, I think this morning or last night, that Trump raised $14 million yesterday on his birthday. Um, so that's certainly a eye-popping number and a record-breaking number. Uh, what else is there? Yeah, I think, Kyle, the sheer amount of money that some Democratic U.S. Senate challengers have raised. Mark Kelly, running in Arizona, $11 million raised in the first quarter of this year. Sarah Gideon, running in Maine, $7.1 million in the first quarter. Amy McGrath in Kentucky, $13 million. Jamie Harrison, South Carolina, $7.4 million. I expected them to be well-funded, but perhaps not to this extent. These are amounts that exceed what competitive U.S. Senate candidates would have raised for the duration of their campaigns not too long ago. For example, in 2008, in the Maine Senate race, Democratic Congressman Tom Allen raised $6 million for his entire campaign against Susan Collins, who raised $7.6 million. And even when you account for higher contribution limits and inflation, Gideon and Collins are going to blow past that. So it just shows how Democratic donors are really engaged in the fight for control of the Senate, where Democrats need a net gain of three or four seats, depending on the outcome of the presidential election. Yeah, we are in a different stratosphere from 2008. Uh, just remarkable to see these numbers coming in. All right, next question. Do you foresee Issa regaining his seat? Yes, I do. And that refers to Daryl Issa, the former uh, Republican congressman from Southern California. He retired uh, from a Democratic trending district at the end of 2018. But then when Republican Duncan Hunter resigned from Congress from a nearby and more Republican congressional district, Daryl Issa decided to make a comeback and he won, or at least he came in a uh, he got a spot, a berth in the November general election under the California's top two primary system. That's a very Republican district, and I expect ISA will defeat uh, the Democrat who almost defeated Duncan Hunter in 2018. So he won't be regaining his seat, but he will potentially be coming back to Congress. All right, next question. Um, if it looks like Joe Biden is going to win, do you foresee increased ticket split splitting in some of the most competitive Senate races? Um, so voters can ensure uh, that we maintain a split government? Interesting question. It really is a fascinating question, and I'm just not sure how many voters are actually going to think strategically like that. We have been seeing an increase in straight-ticket voting in presidential elections and Senate elections, as we discussed uh, in our webinar on Wednesday. You have basically a lot much more partisan convergence between how states vote for those two offices. And so I'm not sure how many people are actually going to split their tickets um, to maintain divided control of government. I think um, so So well as um, 
Biden, Joe Biden does in states, I think that lifts up, you know, Democratic Senate candidates. And as you know, I think the Republican Senate candidates, their fortunes will rise or fall depending on President Trump's standing among the electorate as well. Yeah, that's certainly the way uh, things have trended um, the last few cycles. All right, we're going to go out with this one. The last question is, how do you handicap the Marky Kennedy Democratic primary? Well, we'll discuss that next as we head to Massachusetts for the ad of the week. This is a moment that will define a generation. We are angry and we are grieving. We will not look away as innocent black lives are taken. We will not look away from the violence of racism and hate. We will not follow the failed politicians and the policies of the past. And we will not return to normal. Because normal was broken. And this country was built to be something better. So together, we will march. We will demand justice. We will not look away. I'm Joe Kennedy, and I approve this message. That was an ad from Joe Kennedy III, the 39-year-old congressman who represents Boston's western suburbs and southern Massachusetts, and who this year is taking on Senator Ed Markey, who will turn 74 next month and who's served in Congress since 1976. It's a generational Democratic primary, not ideological. And Kennedy shows in this ad that he is of the generation that is marching in the streets in 2020 for social justice. Greg, what did you hear? Well, Kyle, there's some powerful imagery in this ad. There's an image of a raised fist, as Kennedy says near the beginning, this is a moment that will define a generation. There are images of protesters and of the George Floyd mural. The ad doesn't mention Ed Markey, but Kennedy clearly is trying to position himself as the progressive leader on race relations and policing policies. And he's starting to draw contrast with Markey on these issues in debates. He t- he's targeted Markey's vote for the Clinton administration's 1994 anti-crime package, which most Democrats supported, including Markey, but which uh, some Democrats have said have led to more mass incarceration. And he said pointedly in their last debate that you might be known for some things in your time in office, Senator. Racial justice and criminal justice is not one of them. So kind of a pointed remark. So this is one of many competitive races where racial justice issues have seeped into the issue discussion prominently as a result of these sustained uh, nationwide protests. That primary is September 1st, two and a half months away and a little less than a week before Labor Day. Now, before we close the show, we've got a parting shot of trivia for you. This is Down Ballot Counts. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each week, I try to stump Kyle and you, the listeners, with a political trivia question. But let's first review last week's question and answer. Last week, we discussed state legislative elections. I asked for the state that has the largest legislature in terms of total membership. I would normally reveal four choices, but a tremor in the force tells me that Kyle won't need any choices. Kyle, what is the answer to that question? I don't need any help this time. It's New Hampshire. Correct. New Hampshire's House has 400 members who serve on a part-time basis. New Hampshire has just over 1.3 million people, so each state House member represents about 3,300 people on average. Now imagine having 3,300 people per district in the United States, which has a population of 330 million people, and you're talking about House of Representatives that would have 100,000 members. You have to put them in the big house at the University of Michigan or the Horseshoe at Ohio State to run the Congress or something like that. The other end of the spectrum, you have the Alaska Senate with just 20 members, though Alaska is among the least populous states. And now for this week's question, who was the first African-American woman to serve in the Congress? 
You may email your answer to bgovpodcast at bgov.com or tweet it at us using the Bloomberg government Twitter handle at bgov and use the hashtag downballotpod. If you follow BGov on Twitter, you'll see this question in its timeline along with four possible answers. So go ahead and take that poll when it appears. We'll reveal the answer and ask a new question on next week's episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination. He endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. The producer for Down Ballot Counts is David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg government's website, about.egov.com. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Laura Carlson, and I'm dropping into your feed to tell you about Prognosis, a new daily show from Bloomberg. Monday through Friday, we'll spend a few minutes with you every afternoon to help you understand life in the time of COVID-19. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. So come back every afternoon for our coverage and stay safe.